The Water Values Podcast, Session 79. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGinsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my son Joey said, I'm Dave McGimsey and thanks for joining me. We've got a fantastic interview for you today, but first as always, please remember to rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory you use. And also please take the Water Values Listener Survey online at thewatervalues.com. Now on to my interview with Grant Newhouse of Sustainable Water Solutions. Grant is a fantastic guest, and he's going to explain water use in industrial processes in one of the most down-to-earth, understandable ways that I've ever encountered. The interview is a little long, but it flies by. So with that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Grant, thanks very much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Really appreciate your time. Uh, To start off, Grant, could you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Sure. Um, I started in uh, the state of Oregon, attending Oregon State University, and really I think water found me. I um, was studying pharmacy at the time and then made a decision to switch to um, a chemistry and and business dual major, and in the interviewing process, a company uh, interviewed me uh, by the name of American Cyanamid, and they sold something called polymers. To, uh, to something called water plants and wastewater plants, all of which were uh, were a mystery to me, but I was uh, fairly fairly good at uh, chemistry and got along for pretty well with people, so uh, it was a good fit, and that's uh, that's how I entered the water world. All right, and so for a little more background, what are, polymers? Can you tell us a little about what they're what they're used in uh, and and what they do? Yep, that, that was uh, that was one of the one of the basic questions that I had as well. And, and so, uh, as it, as it comes to find out, uh, polymers are, are pretty similar to a railroad train. They're made up of monomers that uh, you could think of as a boxcar. And in the boxcars, they carry either a plus charge or a minus charge. So you get uh, cationic or plus uh, plus charge polymers. Uh, or negatively charged anionic polymers, um, and then what those polymers do is they collect um, the small particles in the water from BBs into ping pong balls, if you will, and then uh, <laughs> the uh, the ping pong balls uh, float or sink depending on what it is that you'd like them to do. Um, at the end of the day, it's a liquid solid separation, and the idea with polymers to make uh, the the particle larger. Sure, and and you mentioned that these polymers are used in wastewater and water plants. Are there are there other applications where polymers are used? Well, there there are, and, and so we can think about um, polymers to either cause things to work like a magnet, a north south pole uh, attracting one another, and in that case, uh, if you're talking about a drinking water plant, it, it's all about getting the water um, clear. Uh, prior to filtration, if we're talking about a wastewater plant, it's about removing um, solids that you don't want in the water um, anymore. Um, polymers also can be used um, as scale inhibitors. And, and so in that case, you would want to think of uh, like a charge repulsion. So maybe the two north ends of the ag- uh, magnet pointing toward one another. And so anti-scalance um, polymers would be, be used to keep 
uh, scale particles off of uh, heat transfer services. So, so lots of different uses. Okay. And so how are you putting all this knowledge that you've gained using polymers to, to work in, in, in the water industry? Well, um, here at Sustainable Water Solutions, we work with a, a wide toolbox. Um, and so in our toolbox, we have uh, hammers, wrenches, screwdrivers, uh, you know, ratchets, uh, things of that nature. Only in our world, we would pronounce those as uh, polymers, reverse osmosis membrane, nanofiltration membrane, flotation cells, uh, centrifuges, things of that nature. And so at the end of the day, um, we use the tools in the box to remove those things that are troublesome in water um, and uh, let the water itself be reused or um, optimize that water such that it can be used most effectively in either boilers or cooling or process applications, uh, things of that nature. So uh, I guess the general idea is we make water with various tools most fit for use. Okay, and it sounds to me like uh, when when you say process water, that that in in, in my mind uh, says manufacturing. Um, well, it does, it does, and so it could be something as simple as um, if we're in a peach cannery, uh, we don't want any spots on cans or or on glasses, uh, glass material that the peaches are canned in. That that could be an application. Um, it, it could be as uh, you know more exotic, where we would be claiming um, a process reagent, uh, you know, stream, um, plating, gold mining, things of that nature. Um, so yeah, think, things like that. Okay, and so could you give us just the broad overview? I know you gave some very specific examples there of the peach cannery, and and I, but could you tell us, give us the broad overview of just water use in the manufacturing sector? Sure. There are there are three uh, three or four major applications, and so uh, the first application would be watering that's entering the manufacturing facility, and so that might be out of a well, it might be uh, coming from a city, et cetera. And, and so uh, we need to make sure um, that there are no uh, trouble-causing impurities in that water. And so a common example uh, might be iron or manganese um, in a in a well water source. If that's left um, as is, um, then we end up with, with brown water and brown spots, which, which is in, in general not a good thing. Uh, we may uh, need to remove uh, hardness from that water uh, prior to introduction into a boiler. And so one tool we may use would be uh, just a common water softener that, that you may have in a house, only it's a heck of a lot bigger in an industrial um, uh, place. If we want to get more efficient, um, we would use reverse osmosis uh, in place of a softener. So we would remove not only the hardness, but uh, literally everything that, that is in the water. Uh, that, that would help us so that we could use uh, less water in that boiler. In terms of cooling towers, um, we may want to take the alkalinity out of the water using uh, an acid so that we don't uh, form various trouble-causing scales. Uh, so, so that's that's the first big application point is treating water so that it's, so it's appropriate for use when it enters the facility, and then every application point, whether that be boilers, which we talked about, cooling, which we talked about, uh, it may be um, process waters. Um, in the case of a of a uh, tomato processing facility, 
uh, water is actually used. Um, the trucks come into the to the plant. Uh, the truck is actually filled with water, and then the tomatoes are kind of floated out of the truck. That water is reused, so we may want to put uh, some chlorine, for example, in that water to, to keep it fresh uh, so that that water can be used over, uh, you know, over and over. And then finally, um, at the end of the plant, uh, where we would have water that is um, about to be discharged, most generally to a wastewater treatment system owned by a city, but sometimes to farmers' field for irrigation, uh, we have the option of reclaiming and reusing that water uh, such that, uh, again, we would take out those things that are not uh, wanted in the water uh, and circle that water back for reuse uh, into the plant. Okay. So uh, process water is water that's used in, in the manufacturing process, and it sounds like there's a couple chunks, right? There's the cooling, there's the uh, used in, in boilers, and then there's the end of pipe or point of use uh, yeah. uh, waters that you're that, – so those are the three big buckets that you've identified. Um, let, let's kind of take those one by one. Let's talk about cooling first. Uh can you give us, I know you, you talked a little about, you know, water going into a cooling tower. For those who don't really know about cooling towers or how they function and all that, can you tell us how water uh, helps in the cooling process and what an absorption, you know, an absorption chiller is a, or a cooling tower is or things like that? Could you just walk us through real quickly uh, what, how water is sure. used in that process? Thank you. Sure. So um, with regard to cooling water, um, the idea is always we would transfer water from um, a warm or hot um, area. So that could be um, a hot uh, process stream. It could be, uh, we mentioned canning, where uh, cans are actually cooked and then they're cooled down with water. Um, so water is, um, is heated up. The heat goes from the process into the cooling water. The same sort of thing holds uh, if we're talking about air conditioning, HVAC type stuff. Uh, water in general um, it takes is the medium that is used to transfer heat from a process um, item into this uh, cooling water. So now we have warmer cooling water, and that warmer cooling water goes over a cooling tower. Um, in the cooling tower, um, you can think of uh, water entering through maybe a 6 or 12-inch pipe. It goes through a distribution deck and then is broken up into small droplets of water, um, similar to what you would see coming out of your shower head in your home. And these uh, small, small drops of water cascade down over uh, many areas of, of what we call fill or packing. And the idea is um, that we have air coming from the bottom of the cooling tower up. The water is coming down from the top of the cooling tower, and some portion of that water will evaporate. And so that evaporation process uh, is the means by which uh, energy or heat is rejected from, uh, from that tower. And so, um, again, we've taken water from an unwanted area of the process. We've put it into the cooling uh, water, and then we've rejected that heat uh, through evaporation out, out the top of, uh, of the cooling tower. And uh, water is the medium that is used to do that. And so uh, how efficiently we use that water uh, matters a lot. Um, and so to give you an example, 
Um, we can take um, a, a, a simple cooling operation that, that we recently took a look at. Uh, cooling is always rated in tons, and, and so in this operation, it was a fruit processor. So they uh, they cleaned oranges and lemons and, and whatnot um, and prepared them for shipment in boxes. And we were able to uh, to show that processor using who uses just a real small cooling tower, 200 tons, how to save uh, three million gallons of water a year simply by getting the chemistry right um, in that in that cooling tower. Well, that is uh, three million gallons a year. That's that's absolutely huge. Uh, when you say getting the chemistry right, what's entailing getting the chemistry right? Well, um, that, that does seem like a, a lot. Um, however, um, there are other industries where the, the number is, uh, is bigger. And so if we took a look at the data center industry um, here in California, there are about 800 uh, data centers in, in the state. Um, as a group, they use somewhere around 100 billion uh, gallons of water a, a year. Um, and if those towers were optimized, uh, uh, there would be a savings of somewhere around 10 billion, billion with a B, gallons um, of water per, per year. So the opportunities to make an impact are uh, are, are, are quite large. And so when we say get the chemistry right, what, what does that mean? Um, nothing um, can can be inf infinitely optimized, I guess. And so, uh, if we took started with an inch and we cut it in half, now we got a half inch and cut it in half, and, and now we got a quarter inch. And, and when we were in grade school, we we may remember the the professor asking us how long until uh, we get to zero, and, and of course the answer is never. Um, so with a cooling tower optimization or boiler optimization. Really what we're talking about is um, getting the equipment such that um, it uses, um, you know, kind of approaching an optimum amount of water, and we do that by getting the pH right. We do that by um, getting the anti-scalant level right. Uh, we do that by controlling biocides um, biology in the tower. And then we do that by inspecting what we expect. And so... What we mean by that is we put sufficient gauging, monitoring, et cetera, on the system so that we can see uh, deviations in the process and then report those to uh, to the folks that are that are responsible for running those pieces of equipment. Um, and then they have the data to make a decision: do we or do we not fix this particular thing today? Uh, or maybe we put it on the list and get to it next week. So. Um, that that's that's kind of the name of the game with with regard to uh, to cooling. Okay, so and pH scaling uh, are two of the the issues that you got to get right. How how do those introduce inefficiencies into how how a cooling tower or a boiler or anything like that works? Well, great great question. Uh, with regard to cooling, we had mentioned that, that it's all about heat transfer, and so. You can think of um, attempting to cook an egg on your stove. If you have a gas stove, you would put a pan uh, on the stove, uh, turn the, uh, the gas on, and then in short order, you would be ready to cook your egg. When, when there's scale on a heat transfer surface, uh, then, then it's a little bit different. Then it would be like um, putting two, two bricks on your stove and then the pan on top of the bricks. And, and what happens is uh, that heat is retarded uh, from getting to to the pan itself because there's foreign material 
between the heat source and the metal of the pan. That happens in industrial settings. Uh, of course, the, the deposits are not as thick as a brick, um, but uh, once you start getting deposits built up, um, even as thin as an eggshell, um, you start seeing some of that heat not retard, not uh, passing directly into the, the metal and in the cooling water. You see it, uh, you know, kind of reflected back uh, from from where it came, and, and so those inefficiencies can really cause um, a problem. Um, all cooling uh, apparatus um, is designed for a certain amount of, of heat flux. In the case of air conditioning, that can be tied directly to kilowatts. And so a dirty cooling system uh, will use far more kilowatts to produce the same amount of cooling uh, than, than a clean one. And so those savings can easily um, exceed 100,000 a year and, and many times uh, significantly more than that. So uh, the name of the game is, is get the chemistry right, keep the, keep the uh, heat transfer services clean, or pay pay the penalty. Sure, and you've you've really identified uh, kind of a, a, an issue in the water energy nexus here. You know the the trade off between uh, water efficiency, energy efficiency. Uh, could you talk a little about about how those interface with each other in in a cooling system? Well, sure. Um, as as we're talking about um, water and energy efficiency. Um, in, in the old old days, if you will, um, and to some great extent now, uh, water was very plentiful and very cheap. And so it really didn't matter um, to, to a great extent how much um, you used because, again, it's cheap and, and there's plenty of it. Now, um, certainly in the southwestern part of the United States and, and other portions of, of the world, uh, you know, now that is not the case. We're finding out, uh, of course, uh, what has been true for a long time, which is water is finite. Um, there are uh, a number of people um, that are in the mix now, and I'm just going to talk about California as an example. Population growth, growth in California uh, means that more people are competing for that finite resource. Um, we can talk about the agriculture in California that is competing for the water to feed the people. Um, and then we can talk about um, a hydropower, uh, which uh, that industry, of course, you know, by the by the very definition of the word, uses water to to make electricity. So they compete for that water. Um, and, and what we see is a lot of pressure on the same resource and increasing pressure on that resource, which means, of course, the price is going to go up. And so um, it, it's kind of interesting when you take a look at uh, at Los Angeles as an example. Uh, we, we've had the governor uh, ask everyone to save water, which, of course, uh, you know, to, the, to a great extent has been accomplished um, for, for the individual. Uh, but that means that the water agencies are not receiving the amount of revenue uh, that they would have in the past. And so now the price of water, uh, on one hand, congratulations, you've done a good job saving water. But um, here is your new water rate, which may be double or triple what it was in, in the past. And so short story is the price of water is, is going up, and so that it becomes more of a, a focal point. With regard to, uh, to energy, the same exact thing um, holds true. Uh, companies now are trying to be as efficient as is possible. When we're talking about kilowatts of energy, of course, 
the, the vast majority of energy in this country is, um, you know, involving a carbon source. And so people are uh, paying attention to carbon footprint and things like that. Um, you know, so, uh, so, so those things, it's not so much that, 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 uh, that the levers have changed. It's just they've become far more visible and a lot bigger. Got it. Got it. Uh, so I think we've we've covered cooling. Let's move over to to boilers and the heating systems. And so, uh, can you you know explain how how uh, water is used in these boiler systems? Well, sure. Um, we can think of boilers as uh, the the exact inverse to uh, to cooling. And so, the, the name of the game with the boiler is to take a um, a source of heat. Uh, and that, in the case of a boiler, is either uh, hot water or it's steam. And that heat is made in a location and it's transferred uh, across the plant grounds to a different area where, where it's needed. Uh, and that, that heat is, is used there. So that it could be for cooking food. It could be for steaming rice. It could be for um, melting uh, plastics, for, uh, for heat injection. could be used for all kinds of stuff. Humidification in, in paint. Um, the list kind of goes on and on. In general, if you're looking at an industrial manufacturing process, you're going to have both cooling um, and, and boilers. So boilers are, are there to, to transfer uh, the, uh, the heat from one place to another. When we talk about water in a boiler, um, there are a list of standards uh, that have been put out by American Society of Mechanical Engineers uh, boilers were invented somewhere in the late 1800s, and uh, it, it was a clever way to transfer um, energy. But what we quickly found out is if we put just untreated uh, water into the boiler, we start developing the scales that we talked about earlier. Uh, the metal um, actually gets too hot in the boiler, and we have metal failure and boiler explosions. And so really that's how the whole water treatment uh, industry was started. Um, it was in response to uh, explosions in uh, in boilers, and so first compounds were things like potato starch um, that was found to be um, a scale modifier, and, and we eventually worked our way up uh, to today's technology, where um, you know, but for for the most part, we remove as many of those impurities as we can. Uh, and then use uh, chemistry kind of uh, kind of as a as a band-aid to, to catch the rest of it hmm. so how can these uh, these boiler systems you know you're 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 treating the water before it goes in uh, and how are there other mechanisms or that we can be more water efficient with with how we use our boiler systems well, that's a great question, and so it's uh, we uh, we here at Sustainable Water Solutions um, think that, that that answer has been around for some time now. So the traditional approach um, to treat a boiler has been softening of the water, uh, which means you just run it through a softener similar to your house. But what we need to remember is the use of a softener adds 10% to the water usage uh, in that application. So it, it's not as simple as just putting the water into the softener and magically it gets soft. Uh, we need to do things like brining and backwashing and, and things of that nature. So at the end of the day, softeners add about 10% to the water use, number one. Number two, they only remove calcium and magnesium. So the other troublesome impurities like silicon, 
uh, alkalinity, things of that nature, really are not um, altered by softeners. And then finally, we need to consider that a softener adds two pounds of salt for every one pound of hardness that, uh, that they temporarily remove. So you may see um, talk in the media about EC, um, electrical conductivity, uh, in, the, in the water, especially in the Central Valley of California. Uh, that did not used to be an issue, but it certainly is now, uh, where uh, individual users and cities and counties, et cetera, are trying to control the amount of uh, EC or things that are dissolved in the water because uh, you have negative impact on uh, crops and, uh, and water sources. And so um, we think um, it's time that softeners go by the wayside uh, and other better technologies such as reverse osmosis um, is employed because uh, reverse osmosis, again, invented in, in the mid-60s down at UCLA, um, it removes all the impurities from water that can cause problems uh, for the end user. It makes uh, for a much smaller boiler uh, water footprint and gas footprint. Uh, and then it also uh, allows the end user to use maybe one, uh, about 5% of the chemicals that they would have had to use otherwise just by getting the pretreatment right. Uh, if there are no problem-causing impurities in the water, no need to hog in, uh, you know, a bunch of chemistries to, you know, combat impurities that are not there. Sure. And, and so when you say reverse osmosis, uh, one of the things that goes through my mind there is that it, that does require energy. Is there a significant energy difference between um, uh, using a softener and, and using reverse osmosis? Well, great, great question, um, Dave, and, and there, there is. Um, however, when we look at the uh, progress of the uh, reverse osmosis membrane, uh, when it was invented, um, there was significant amount of pressure that was required to drive water across that membrane. And so we can think in terms of, uh, you know, three, four, five hundred pounds per square inch, which translates into a, a ton of horsepower. Um, that uh, craft, the craft of manufacturing reverse osmosis membranes, has moved forward now. Uh, and in many cases, um, the pressure that is required to run those systems is below 100 pounds per square inch now, which is, is not very much in an in industrial setting. Um, and, and so what used to be fairly expensive from an energy perspective in the past is now um, on a net, net, net basis um, at no question, the, uh, the the correct direction to go. Hmm. Very. That's you know interesting. I had a guy uh, Klaus Helix Nielsen from Denmark on recently, and he he was talking about his he's with a company that that deals with forward osmosis, and he mentioned that it could be a good pretreatment for reverse osmosis. Uh, and I just I'm curious if you've if you've seen that, um, and if you had any thoughts on it. Well, for, um, for American industry and American manufacturing, and so we're talking about um, the processing of uh, chickens and hogs and beef and cheese and uh, cans of uh, tomatoes and, and, and those sorts of things. Um, the, the, the game that is 
played in terms of a water perspective in those interest in those industries um, is, is fairly simple. So it's um, it, it's similar to just handing the football off to the tailback and he just does a running play right up the middle. There are a number of different technologies that make sense when you get into more exotic applications or more exacting applications, um, such as high pressure boilers, steam turbines, um, manufacturing of uh, microchips, et cetera, where the water quality needs to be um, pretty, pretty exacting and, and pretty high, uh, where some of these other newer, more exotic technologies come into play and make a ton of sense. What we try um, to do for, uh, for our client base, which, which is, again, is, is American manufacturing, is to keep the play as simple as is um, possible um, and as, as affordable as possible. Um, and so those technologies, while they, while they may be a fit um, maybe in the future or they may be a fit for some of those more um, exotic applications, uh, we've, we've not seen a compelling argument for it um, uh, in what we do. Sure. And that jives, I think, exactly with what his point was that, hey, this is this is can be used in very specialty applications. And so it's not something that's, you know, he was very straight up and said, hey, this is, you know, some people have touted forward osmosis as kind of a panacea for all water filtration issues. And he said that's not that's not really the case. It, it does have specialty uses. Uh, but in any event, let's let's move on to. Uh, uh, that third bucket that you mentioned, the point of use and end of pipe. Uh, talk a little about how water is reused, if you would, in in the manufacturing processes. Well, that's that's interesting, um, and and that that I think is uh, is kind of the future of the industry. Um, and the reason that we say that is, um, if you look now, we have water that would come out of the ground or or a lake, and then it's pumped. Um, most of the time, a considerable distance to the water treatment plant uh, where it's processed, cleaned, et cetera. Then it's pumped to various end users. Um, and then after the end user, it's collected and pumped to the sewer plant uh, where it's processed. And then it's pumped again um, to uh, a river or a percolation bed or ocean discharge or whatever it may be. So there's a bunch of energy that is in, uh, in, involved with uh, the treatment and, more important, the, the transportation of water from here to there. Uh, we think as we um, become more evolved in our thinking, uh, it makes a lot more sense to do what we call point of, uh, point of use uh, recycle and reuse. So once the water um, arrives at the manufacturing location, uh, the, the appropriate treatment technologies would be installed such that the good water is kept and only um, the components of, of the water that are not needed, such as suspended solids or BOD or, or any number of other things that could be in the water, um, those would be disposed of. And so that's that's kind of what we're talking about um, when we talk about um, end point of end point of use reuse. Now, when we think about something like that, um, we're going to we'll just use uh, let, let's say a, a beef uh, slaughtering operation. I don't. I tell you what. Let, let's use an automobile uh, manufacturing operation. It's, it's easier to understand. 
So when we would get water at the end of the automobile manufacturing process, um, that water would have uh, generally some uh, some dissolved metals in it. It might have some turbidity in it, et cetera. And so a, a person might want to put in um, a, a piece of technology that removes um, those things that are causing uh, you know, the water to be cloudy, and so we might want to do some sedimentation or, or filtration. We might want to remove some of the dissolved um, ions that are in the water, again, through uh, RO, something, uh, something of that nature. And then, in general, about 80% of the water that used to go down the sewer pipe can now be put right back into the front of the manufacturing process, and that water will be far better uh, than city water that comes into the plant uh, from the city. And so we're starting to see enough lever um, in the equation where, where that's starting to make sense in, in a number of different industries. Um, we get into talking about what, uh, you know, what water quality is appropriate for use. And so some, uh, if we stay with that automobile manufacturer, um, they may have a, uh, an application for a certain amount of water uh, to water, shrubbery, grass, et cetera. Certainly that's one water quality. Um, a second water quality might be used in, um, in cooling towers. A third might be used um, in, in boilers. And a fourth maybe might be used in, in a painting application. So we have the technology now available to us so that we can make the water clean enough but not too clean, which which translates into um, you know a fairly economical solution. Hmm. And, and do you continue to capture and reuse even the reused water? So you're almost continuously cycling the same water through the through the process, or is there is there ever is there ever kind of a a place where the where the water gets out of that cycle? Um, no, and, and so big big picture, think about our life here on the rock. Um, the water that's here is here, um, and it is uh, recycled through you know through natural processes. And so, when when we talk about um, reusing uh, water, if we can just break it down into H two O and then junk, uh, if we're able to separate out H two O from junk that H2O can be used over and over and over and over infinitely. Um, and, and so that, that's, that's kind of the point. Um, and then the, the obvious next question is, well, what do we do with the junk? And, and so um, that's a great question. Um, what you'll hear about is, um, you know, what, what, are we, what are we going to do with some of the brines that we currently produce? So brines from softeners, brines from reverse osmosis, et cetera. Um, and, and that is a big, big question that as, as we uh, move further down uh, the water efficiency line, uh, questions like that are going to need to be answered um, as, a, as a group. And so one example of how that is currently answered is there is what is called a brine line down in the L.A. basin where um, if you have a property that is on this brine line, it, it's okay to dump pretty salty water uh, high in EC, like we mentioned before. It's okay to do that because that water ends up um, in, in the ocean. And the same sort of thing is going on up here in San Francisco with uh, the, the East Bay mud guys. They take highly saline water and they dump it uh, in the ocean. 
but the question uh, really is for those people who are in Modesto, uh, Fresno, places like that that are inland, and frankly, a long way from uh, from a brine line or from a, from an East Bay uh, mud operation. What do those you know? What do those guys do? Um, there are answers uh, to that question. Uh, probably not appropriate for this discussion, but um, water is kind of a spider webby type thing, um, and, and we believe that uh, that you need to look at it in um, kind of a holistic way, uh, as opposed to uh, you know maybe an inch or two up from the from the work surface. Got it. Well, Grant, you have absolutely been fantastic walking us through how water is used in these manufacturing processes. Uh, for those folks who want to find out more about you and Sustainable Water Solutions, where can they go to find that information? Well, a good place to start would be um, on the web, sustainablewatersolutionsllc.com. Um, you can look us up there on our website. There's a couple simple, easy-to-understand videos. I, I think they're somewhere around a minute or two long, kind of fun. Uh, probably even appropriate to share with your kids if uh, you know if you want to have an after dinner discussion that doesn't involve television. Um, <laughs> or uh, you can you can re- reach us at eight five five two eight nine seven eight seven eight. Terrific. Well, Grant, thanks very much. You've been absolutely fantastic. Really appreciate your time, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you, Dave. You betcha. Bye. Bye now. Well, that was my interview with Grant Newhouse. I bet you learned a lot. He was fantastic and explained industrial water use in a very understandable fashion, and I really appreciated his time. Well, with the interview that lasted over 35 minutes, uh, there's no time for takeaways in this episode. Uh, I thought Grant's explanations were pretty straightforward and a big value add. Uh, So please check out the show notes for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 79 and leave a comment or email me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me at DTM1993 and tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. Please also rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or other podcast directories, like I asked you at the top of the show. And also, don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast and to sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which can be done at thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me thank you for tuning into the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in colorado and indiana and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else and information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice further this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment i'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.